We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. Welcome, everyone, to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Rochester's Extreme Independent Radio. We are that extreme and independent that microphones, they're an option. <laughs> it's like TV without camera. <laughs> we can do whatever we want to do with this medium, can't we? No. So it's Saturday, October 24th. Thanks for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station evidence of design that's our show and we talk about income and wealth inequality in the united states we critique the fact that there is such rampant amounts of income and wealth inequality right now the top oh 10 percent of uh wealthiest people in the country own 70 percent of all of the wealth and the statistics are slightly less dire for income, but still not so rosy. That rampant economic inequality has profound effects on our society, we believe, and so we critique the causes of and investigate the effects of income and wealth inequality. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jason Taylor, and we're also joined at the WXIR studios on this Saturday, October 24th, my good friends and co-hosts. Matt Treadwell. Good morning. And Mary Lawrence. Good morning. Because we are live, that also means you can give us a ring, a ding ding, at 585 219 8889. Again, that's 585 219 8889. What would you call in about? Well, whatever you want. But if you want to be more specific, today is the first day of 
early voting in New York State. That's right, folks. The 2020 election. You know, in the United States, elections feel like they're always going on because we have set up a system for ourselves where people are constantly campaigning for election. Now it actually comes to a head. Now we can actually cast our votes for the next president of the United States in addition to a lot of other important down-ballot races. Like, you know, down-ballot's kind of a pejorative term, but other races like state and senate assembly and so on and so on. Don't miss out on this year's election. You can start voting today and Mary Lawrence will give us a rundown of where and when you can vote. Also on today's episode, we are discussing two important updates in the news this week that deals with our topic of economic inequality. First, we'll cover a lawsuit brought against Google, have you heard of it, by the Justice Department. This is the largest antitrust lawsuit in several decades since at least the lawsuit the federal government brought against Microsoft in the 1990s. This is very important because the biggest tech companies of our time, including Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Facebook, have been brought before, uh, you know, our Congress to testify on their market power in addition to other things like stifling competition and potential monopoly. So this is the sort of first major lawsuit coming out of those testimonies and investigations. This is a big deal because these companies are, well, as authors of a uh, House report on these companies, these companies are the modern-day Standard Oil, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgans, etc., etc. Very powerful, hold a lot of market power, control a lot of the aspects of our lives. Is that good? Is it bad? What's going on? We'll talk about that this hour. We'll also talk about how Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin, otherwise known as OxyCodone, it's one of uh, you know the notorious opioid prescription painkillers, how Purdue Pharma has pleaded guilty to federal criminal charges this week, totaling more than $8 billion. This is a long time coming in America's opioid crisis. Over the past 20 years, more than 450,000 Americans have died from opioid-related overdoses. And this crisis was largely manufactured by companies like Purdue Pharma, who sought to seek as many profits as possible through the selling of their drugs. And it's been revealed that they sought kickback agreements with doctors and uh, health agencies such that for each um, opioid prescription doctors prescribed or the health company prescribed, they would get a certain kickback money from Purdue Pharma. And Purdue Pharma aggressively advertised and peddled their drugs despite the humanitarian costs that it had. So we'll cover that and more on today's show. We'd love to hear from you again. 585 219 895-219-8889. We'll be right back on 100.9 FM WXIR. Protector by Camp St. Helen. And this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Let's start out today's show by talking about the latest COVID-19 facts and figures. Mary, Matt, I watched a little bit of the third and final presidential debate this week, and uh, right at the start of the debate, Donald Trump, 
Our dear president was asked about COVID-19 and he said, we are turning the corner on the virus. We've turned the corner. It'll disappear. It'll go away soon. There have been spikes here and there, but the spikes have gone. Mary, uh, apparently yesterday, Friday, was the record for the number of COVID-19 cases in the United States. I don't know the definition of turning a corner, but... Well, I mean, um, you could turn some corner, I mean... <laughs> yeah, that's true. He didn't specify what corner we're turning. <laughs> we're getting um, better. I think, it, I think it was insinuated that it was the corner towards... Hell? Uh, oh, well, I wasn't going to say that, but I think he was insinuating this was turning the corner towards... Uh, coronavirus being gone, but I think he mm. maybe took directions from someone who doesn't know what a map is. Maybe he meant <laughs> that he was turning uh, the corner for coronavirus cases within his own family. Ooh, maybe. That's a good point. Isn't it great how, like, in the media for the past four years, the job of the media has essentially been to wonder what the president means by the words that he says. <laughs> Donald Trump is a master at saying something, and then we have to pick up the, the slack yeah. to say, what did he mean by the things that he said? You know how we have science translators <laughs> to make science more interesting and palatable for the layman? <laughs> need trump translators <laughs> and it's, the it's president it's so artfully done the plausible deniability because then like you know you you can get the uh you can so easily bifurcate the responses you can get the leftist attack dogs right here we go generalizing the leftist attack dogs saying trump meant one thing he's bad orange man bad then you get the right-wing defenders who say he didn't mean that by by him saying this he meant this other thing <laughs> it's just like it's this wonderful bifurcation but um yeah so Long story short, the Trump administration has failed by all accounts to have any sort of plan to contain COVID-19. It's been an American tragedy and disaster. We have the worst response of any major country on the world stage. We have more uh, cases and deaths than any other country on the world stage. Yesterday, Friday, marked the record of the entire pandemic so far in the United States, the number of confirmed cases. And unfortunately, it looks like locally we have cases starting to go up as well. Mary, do you want to give us a little more specifics about where we're at with COVID-19? Just a little bit. So starting as usual with the world and going down, uh, according to, again, our numbers are always from Worldometer, which you can find pretty easily by just going to worldometers.info. Um, and then you can backslash coronavirus to whatever country you're looking for. Uh, so there have been nearly 43 million cases worldwide reported. And currently, there are about 10 million cases that are active. Daily numbers, as Jason said, have been rising, and they've been rising fairly steeply over the past couple days. In the United States, currently, there are nearly, uh, there have been nearly 9 million cases total, and almost 230,000 of those have resulted in death. Um, I believe on, uh, during the presidential debate, and I don't know what Joe Biden's, um, I'm assuming he was quoting the CDC, but there is apparently an expectation that another 200,000 people are going to die before the end of the year, which originally the count or the expectation was 200,000 by that time. And now it's going to be above 400,000 unless people start and continue taking precautions, which as we've talked about, that's very difficult right now. People are getting very tired um, everyone's tired of not seeing their friends, of not being in school, of not being at work. But unfortunately, it is something that we kind of have to keep working towards. Um, 
In Monroe County, there were, as of Friday, 78 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 since the last update on Thursday. Just to clarify, these aren't, uh, this isn't a one-day total, so these are tests that have come back positive within that time period. So they may be over the course of a few days, but even still, 78 is the first, it's the biggest total in several months, I believe, since May. Um, I don't remember the specific date that mm-hmm. it was the high from, but it is a it is a high number that we haven't seen in several months. And I just want to quote um, our county executive, Adam Bello, who mentioned uh, how there was lacking a, a federal response. So just to quote, this should have been a much better national strategy at reducing the spread of this virus, Bello said. What happens elsewhere in the country reflects what happens here. Testing, tracing, it all should have been better at the federal level. COVID-19 shouldn't be political. Wearing a mask shouldn't be political. It's an act of caring about your community and your neighbors. Uh, End quote. So I just wanted to say that again. Wearing a mask, caring about your neighbors is not a political and shouldn't be a political issue. This is a humanitarian issue. We're just looking out for our community. Um, So... I would love for everyone to to keep that in mind. Absolutely. And, you know, critics of COVID-19, i.e. those who've politicized this virus, say that the cure is worse than the disease. Donald Trump himself said that on the debate stage for this Thursday, uh, for this week's final presidential debate. He says the cure should not be worse than disease. And he said that several times in the past. Yes, and several times. I mean, uh, other countries have had cures for this disease that have not been worse than it. Indeed, by failing to take the cures, meaning social distancing, contact tracing, comprehensive testing, social distancing, mask wearing, uh, an organized governmental response, those are the cures, uh, we have now made problems that are potentially worse than the disease, such as uh, widespread and long-term economic devastation you know, unemployment, so on and so forth. Uh, We have dragged out this crisis in the United States for months and months and months now with no turning. Uh, We don't even know if we've ever left in the so-called first wave. You know, we're we're now entering into the third wave, but we don't know if that's still related to the first wave. So long story short, if we had taken the steps needed, we wouldn't even have to have this problem. Yeah, I'd like to point out there, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was some new data that emerged this week that suggests and it is, it's not like conclusive or anything, but it suggests that opening schools during the pandemic isn't necessarily, um, it can be done to some extent with safety. The, the reason why it's still so dangerous in the United States is because our standards of testing are still not up to par. Tests take too long to um, come back with the results, and there's just not enough tests on hand to begin with in order to effectively contract, contact trace people. And this is a problem that... Donald Trump himself has exacerbated. I mean, he's he's gone on air and said publicly that he wants people to not test as much because that's what makes the numbers go up. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that that is, you know, his cure is worse than the disease. You know, Donald Trump's cure is worse than the disease, meaning lie. And of course, he was caught on tape. We have the tapes of Donald Trump saying he didn't want the American people to panic. 
by talking about COVID-19. Not only is that an insult to our emotional intelligence, but uh, it ended up causing the, the, the unique American crisis that we're in today of having uh, what's going to be probably long-term economic um, depression and, well, most importantly, of course, the loss of so many lives. So COVID-19 is also on the ballot, and there are very different responses to this virus. As a reminder, you can give us a call at 585-219-8889. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. I think we have someone on the line. Let's give it a shot. Hello, you are on the air. Hello, one more time. Sure. So we uh, hang on if you're giving us a call at 585-219-8889. Hang on the line if you're trying to give us a call. Otherwise, you're welcome to dial in 585-219-8889. We'll try to get you on the air. As we transition from talking about COVID-19 facts and figures, we'll quickly bring up the fact that it is early voting right now. Today's the first day. In Today's New York the first day. Matt, are you going to vote? I already voted. Did you really? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. I'm going to vote too. <laughs> um, did you get a sticker? No, I sent in an absentee ballot at the beginning of this month. That's right. Yeah, so also, of course, not only... Yeah, so we should clarify, when we say early voting, there are opportunities to cast a ballot in person at various sites around the county. Uh, however, there's also been uh, you know, mail-in voting uh, or absentee ballot voting, which it sounds like... You did, Matt. That's and applications to that have been sent out, so on and so forth. Uh, the general election day is Tuesday, November 3rd. That's coming up very soon. Uh, just quickly talking about some various places where you can vote here in Monroe County starting today. Most of the polling places run from around 9 to 3-ish, but again, you can get specific times specific dates at monroecounty.gov forward slash elections. Some places you can go vote today, if you are registered, of course, is the David F. Gant Community Center, the City of Rochester Recreation Bureau, Genesee Valley Fieldhouse, Edgerton Recreation Center, SUNY Empire State College, the Town of Chilai Senior Center, North Greece Road Church of Christ, Marketplace Mall at the North Entrance, the Arondequite Public Library, Harris Whalen Park Lodge, Parenton Square Mall, and the Webster Recreation Center. Again, for a full and um, specific list, check out monroecounty.gov forward slash elections. Why would you want your vote to be wasted and your right to be squandered on in this election season? I'm not sure, Matt. I know I won't let that happen to my vote. And I also want my sticker, my uh, I voted sticker. Those are, um, I'm all about the stickers. Yeah, you're going to post a selfie on Instagram later? <laughs> I got to sign up first. <laughs> well, let's transition now to talk about some of our features for today's show on 100.9 FM WXIR. You're listening to Evidence of Design. We're covering two cases, two legal cases that came up this past week. One was a lawsuit by the Justice Department against Google, uh, in, uh, alleging antitrust violations. This is the largest antitrust case the federal government has brought in several decades. This is a big deal. And a little later in the hour, we'll get to the fact that Purdue Pharma, maker of OxyContin, uh, has pleaded guilty 
to federal criminal charges in their complicity in manufacturing the opioid crisis. Let's turn our attention now to the antitrust lawsuit against Google that the Justice Department announced this week. Matt, there's a lot going on with this contextually and also in the specificities of the case. What's going on? Yeah, so on Tuesday, October 20th of this week, the Justice Department, along with 11 state attorneys general, fired, filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google. The lawsuit alleges that Google engages in monopolistic and anti-competitive business practices uh, that stifle competition and innovation in order to remain the most popular search engine in the U.S. Um, the DO, from the DOG's own complaint, they said, between its exclusionary contracts and owned and operated properties, Google effectively owns or controls search distribution channels accounting for roughly 80% of the general search queries in the United States. I don't think that's really news to anybody. I mean, Google is ubiquitous at at this point. The the DOJ's DOJ's complaint even said that to Google something is a verb. It's become a verb. Right. (laughs) I mean, we've talked before on the show about how, you know, Amazon wants to supplant the market. That's so much... uh, Shopping is done online these days, and so much of it through Amazon. I think the the first step to that two-step process is people Googling Amazon <laughs> to get to Amazon. True. But, um, yeah, uh, so getting a bit more specific, among those exclu- exclusionary practices, the Department of Justice estimates that Google pays Apple alone between 8 and $12 billion a year in order to be the default search engine for Safari, which is the browsing software used on Apple's iPhones and iPads. Uh, The Department of Justice alleges that similar deals exist between wireless carriers such as AT&T and Verizon and browser developers like Mozilla in order to secure this default status. And this is very important, and Google understands this because uh, data shows that so many people typically don't change over from the default settings on a lot of their devices. I mentioned earlier that the Department of Justice said about 80% of searching channels are owned or operated by Google. Something like 95% of all searches on mobile devices are done through Google. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's monolithic at this point. I mean... So just just to provide context, Matt, you're saying, you know, not only is Google popular, as in people enjoy going to Google to search things, but Google has contracts with various companies to make the Google search engine the default application for searches. And we know through behavioral science that opt-out things, meaning in order to change behavior, you need to opt out of it, meaning it's default for you, it's standard, it's automatic for you. So it's standard and automatic for you to search things via the Google search engine through various platforms because of these expensive contracts Google has with other companies. So not is it only that Google is popular for people to do searches, but they actually have deals and agreements with companies to make it so that Google's the default. Exactly. And this is something that actually might relate to the uh, 1998 lawsuit against Microsoft that you mentioned earlier, Jason, which was centered around the fact that Microsoft at the time was bundling its browsing software, Internet Explorer, with its operating system, Windows. Um, This was seen as, this was eventually ruled as anti-competitive because uh, other competing browsing softwares at the time, like uh, wait, I wrote some down here. <laughs> what are they Netscape called? Netscape Navigator. Anybody remember that? <laughs> and 
Opera. Never heard of that one. You never heard of Opera? No. Dude, I used Opera a couple times. Really? Not Netscape Operator. <laughs> I used Netscape. Wait, did you really? Yeah, I really did. Oh, that, did you? That's awesome. Wow. What it's like? What a time. <laughs> I, I just, you know, it's not, it's not something that's like totally out of the realm of. I didn't use it very much, but yeah, at a, at a time, there's a time. Huh. In my young age. When you were googling, you know, things that young Mary would Google. Strategy guides. You know, for math Just looking up harrypotter.com, things like that. Oh, the early days. Typing of the in the HTTP colon forward slash, forward slash, yeah. <laughs> you know, the good times. Um, but yeah, getting back on topic. Um, so Microsoft at the time in like the early to mid-90s was bundling its browsing software, Internet Explorer, with its operating system. So it would come already installed. And this was seen as anti-competitive against other browsing softwares, which had to be downloaded, often had to be paid for. Uh, so um, eventually, um, Microsoft lost that case. And, and there are some who even claim that, in hindsight, that sort of led the way or, or paved the way for innovation uh, such as Google uh, right. to, to be allowed to come about. Um, that's, that's a really interesting point that... There's a whole entire another show. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think also, this isn't really related, but I think recently Microsoft said that it's ending support for Internet Explorer. They have a new, uh, like they have a replacement for it. Yeah. It is... Um, Microsoft Edge. Yeah. Actually, I have a relatively new Windows computer and they keep pushing Microsoft Edge. It's like brand new as of, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something. Yeah, and every time you try to, like, get it off of your desktop to it unpin it, it like, they, like, won't let you get it rid of it. It won't go away. It's the same as Internet Explorer. It's like, it's like that U2 <laughs> album on iTunes a few years ago. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't want this. Thank you very much. That's another problem. Thank you, companies. <laughs> so can you guys guess what Google's response has been to all this? Um, Google. So my guess is that Google, and this is what I was going to ask you, Matt, to play devil's advocate. My guess is Google says, look, uh, we operate in a fair market system uh, because people, it, it just so happens people use our services a lot. It must mean that our services are the best. And therefore, um, there's nothing wrong with that. It just means we make a really good product. And look, we still have to compete against competitors. That's basically it. Uh, their official statement in response to this was, uh, and, I, and I quote, people use Google because they choose to, not because they're forced to or because they can't find alternatives. This lawsuit would do nothing to help consumers. To the contrary, it would artificially prop up lower quality search alternatives, raise phone prices, and make it harder for people to get the search services they want to use. And this is a, a very sort of like... Um, Par for the course defense that a lot of big companies make whenever they are, uh, you know, whenever they're being, uh, I guess, facing up this this kind of scrutiny. And this is something that a lot of tech companies in the past have said that you know we don't we provide a service we're popular because we're we're just inherently better than a lot of the competition that's out there. And the fact that we own and influence most of the market has nothing to do with the fact that we're so freaking ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, Google, of course, is saying, Matt, and if you don't mind me jumping in here, Matt, Google, of course, is saying, you know, we're not culpable here. I don't know why you're going after us, Department of Justice. We just make a really good product, and consumers really enjoy that product. Um, I love Google, personally. I Google things 100 times a day, and, and, and I do that not because – well, let me back up. 
I, I don't love Google in terms of I have like um, a fanboy relationship to it. I love just the fact that I can find information. I don't care if it's Google or some other product. This is very easy for me to use. The irony that I was Googling information about this lawsuit last night is not lost on me. Right. So you're exactly. And so <laughs> m my question is, you know, how, how let's say, okay, Google owns a monopoly on search in the United States. Why is that a problem? Well, that's a, a, an important question to ask because under antitrust law, the DOJ will have to successfully argue not only that Google is a monopoly, but also that its uh, omnipresence is harmful to consumers. And Google has argued in the past, and I think I, I, they might have said in that statement I just read to you a few moments ago, that they can't be considered harmful because its search engine service is free to use. Mm. Um in an article published in the New York Times this week, there were a number of they listed a number of ways in which Google's dominance could be considered harmful despite being free, and those include charging higher fees for ads and their services, which could cause smaller businesses to pass on those fees to consumers by marking up their own products, or even be priced out of advertising altogether. We've talked before on the show about how Amazon uh, plays this game where it, you know, um, in order to be be competitive at all, you basically have to get your product onto Amazon. And I think mm -hmm. with Google, it's very much the same, be just because of how you know popular and how 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 frequently used it is. Uh, in addition to that, the the Google's not really incentivized to provide an optimal search engine experience because it doesn't really have anyone to compete against. You know, if you if you're not finding the thing you want through Google, it's like, what else are you going to use? Bing. Yeah, or Yahoo. <laughs> or go to ask a librarian for help. Yes, Mary. <laughs> just a, it's just a, a suggestion that's a really important suggestion, actually. So instead, <laughs> of, instead of pulling out my smartphone and typing something in Google, which takes five seconds, I'm going to drive to the library during a pandemic. You can call ask. the library, Jason. Okay. They have telephones. That's a good point. And uh, voices. Yeah. yeah. I, voices. I'm being snarky just because. And you because. can also, <laughs> like, some libraries even have chat functions on their webpage, so you can go on their webpage and chat with a librarian, <laughs> which it is, it's not as fast, but uh, the results might be a little bit more thorough and a little bit more accurate to what you're actually looking for. I'm, I'm playfully being snarky because, yeah, librarians did serve as kind of the, the Google from oh, I'm, Google. Oh, I'm plugging this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm plugging the suggestion to access your library for information if you can't find it on Google. But what if the librarian just Googles the question that I'm asking them? Oh, they might, but they also have other resources. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they're, they're, because, surprise, surprise, there actually are other search engines. Right. And, and some and, of them are specified. And ways to find information. And ways to find information, Right, right. Because, yes. again, Google, Google is a sort of a, a warehouse, a database of links to things that are algorithmically organized based on um, uh, interests and likes and uh, relationships between words. <laughs> so that's kind of what a database is yeah. you know, for Google. But. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the, 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 the issue in sort of some of the – how do you how do you regulate a company like Google? If many people have point, pointed out, if you break up Google with its billions upon billions of um, st stored sort of websites, then it, by definition, it becomes a less optimal service, which isn't necessarily what people are wanting, I don't think. And so some people are suggesting that Google should be regulated almost like a public utility, mm -hmm. in the same way that telephone companies. Uh, when they first uh, appeared in the United States, 
you weren't you weren't able to call people that were using a different telephone company and it wasn't until a sort of universal system was developed that was then uh regulated by the FCC that sort of telephoning came into its own I was actually wondering about that. Like, is there, I'm not sure if this came up in your research, but is there a movement um, towards an open source search engine that's not owned by a company? I didn't look too much into that. I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't. I mean, I would be surprised if there isn't because that seems like a a very um, sensible thing to do. Because mm-hmm. I mean that does seem like a good idea at this point when uh, when the information that's available on engines like Google and, and Yahoo or, or Bing or whatever it is so important and it is so useful and even right now with things like Google Classroom being the way that public schooling is carried out it does seem like it should be more of a a public service and not private at this point. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's important to remember that. Google has uh, its hands in a number of different markets. Not aside from its uh, ubiquity in search engines, it also has things like its Android line of products, sure. uh, Google Chrome, which is its browsing software, and these are other things that people have said might be targeted for being uh, um, divided into separate entities. Yeah, YouTube. YouTube, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, one thing. One other thing that uh, came up in my research when in, in that New York Times article that was talking about the negative impacts of having such a large uh, company like Google involved in, in search software, um, so much there's Google has been accused of having an ad duopoly with Facebook, and this is getting to sort of like a point I want to make at the end of the segment, but. A vast majority of ads are now found on Google and Facebook, and those ads are increasingly... uh, That's what a lot of news publication websites depend on for revenue. And so because they're increasingly found on these social media platforms and, and, and in Google, the sort of incentive is to uh, attract those ads by, you know, popping up on those platforms, which tend to promote more sensationalized journalism. And so one of the things that that New York Times article brought up was the declining quality of journalism that focuses more on attention-grabbing headlines rather than, you know, rigorously uh, researched work. Yeah, that's a a very strong point, Matt. And just a reminder to folks that you're tuned into 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is evidence of design. We're talking about a lawsuit that came out this week from the Justice Department against Google. It's the largest antitrust lawsuit in decades. And you can give us a call if the phone system's working. I think it might be back up at 585. I think it might be. 219-8889. Again, give us a buzz. 585-219-8889. Matt, you just mentioned a a really strong point about the duopoly, as it were, an ad duopoly, meaning with Facebook, meaning Google and Facebook essentially control uh, the market for digital advertisements through the power of their platforms. And I think it gets to really the heart of the matter when it comes to this lawsuit against Google, which, by the way, this is the beginning, not necessarily the end, it seems, to um, greater scrutiny from both the public and our governments against monopolistic 
seeming corporations nowadays. In, in big tech, specifically. Big tech, right, exactly, yeah. In the big tech industry is that uh, it's weird to talk about this, and this is why it's, we're kind of being snarky and playful throughout this is because I Google things constantly. And um, I imagine that if you're just talking to any other sort of random person, it's like, why do I care that my government is bringing a lawsuit against a search engine? It's really simple stuff. Why do I want a worse search engine, right? Why would I want? Why do I want to choose between a market of search engines to find information? Um, I think there's a lot of nuance to this, and we just have to be a little bit careful and be patient with ourselves and and with the information. Is that Google? As you're bringing up these other points about Google Map, you're reminding us that Google resides within a much larger contextual system of um, advertise internet advertising internet products, internet services, digital hardware. And inter- personal data. And per- right, and, and most importantly, personal data. So when we talk about Google and the Google search engine, we as consumers like to think of that as sort of the product. But to Google, their search engine is not the product. It is the, it is the vehicle through which Google gets their product, which is our data. Yeah, it's and the sickle to our crop. Right. <laughs> and this is the problem, you know, whereas consumers, we can't think about the search engine as the product because it isn't the product. We are the product. And this is really, really, really important when we think about big tech. You know, we have to just be patient and careful. And I, and I myself not exactly sure what to think about all of this. I just know that uh, I'm uncomfortable with the way that big tech controls such a large uh uh, share of power over our lives, whether through hardware, software, data, infrastructure, etc. And I'm uncomfortable with the way that, um, as you said, Matt, you know, things like journalism, the quality of journalism has declined because, uh, let's say, um, algorithms are designed by these companies to uh, favor sort of clickbait or sensational things more so than things that might be a little bit more boring, but might be closer to the truth. Right. I mean, even setting aside the the sort of most egregious ways in which this and the, these uh, companies can misuse the data they collect, most famously, I think, with Cambridge Analytica during the 2016 presidential election. That was when, you know, over 80 million Facebook users in the U.S. had their information uh, illegally stolen through a, a misleading personality test. And then though that data was used to build psychoanalytical profiles, which were centered around using targeted ads to influence public opinion. You know, uh, uh, outside of that <laughs> dystopian <laughs> science fiction, not so much fiction anymore, <laughs> like <laughs> uh, plot, um, the I, we should all be concerned about how our data is being collected and used to... to um, sort of influence us and and potentially even manipulate us. And uh, one thing that, you know, I think it's easy to forget is that, you know, Google is large in and of itself, but it it often operates and is propped up by other very large companies within the tech sector. And this is something going back to the what I said earlier about how Google pays Apple alone between 8 and $12 billion a year just to be the default setting on Safari. And other estimates I looked at suggest that that's between 17 and 26% of Apple's entire revenue for its service uh, sector. And so 
uh, on Democracy Now! this week, they interviewed Zephyr Teachout, who is a, uh, a professor and a, a writer, and she, she said something that I think I'd like to end on, um, which kind of... It's just something, it's something I think people should be thinking about in regards to, again, how does this affect me? Why should I care about this? Why do I need to care about the government, you know, going after something like Google? Why do I want a worse search engine? And she said, looking at the relationship between Apple and Google is really important because here you have Google paying Apple. And I think it helps clarify that we are dealing with something akin to mafia power where you have a handful of big companies that theoretically compete, but they're also supporting each other in growing their power and they are effectively competing against democracy. It's an alternate form of governance. I think that's a strong way to end this coverage of the federal government's lawsuit against Google. We won't get into the politics of it, which is uh, <laughs> Bill Barr, the attorney general, that seems to have been pushed to come out with this. Um, lawsuit earlier pushed on by Trump to get a to get a to get a win before the election and so on and so forth will actually ties into the next thing that we'll cover. But thanks for talking about that, Matt. There's a lot there. As a reminder, you're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You can give us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. Let's talk about now our another uh, lawsuit that came out this week. This is where, well, not a lawsuit, but a sort of decision in a lawsuit against Purdue Pharma. That is the company that makes, that invented oxycotton, otherwise known as oxycodone. It is an opioid that uh, is a painkiller. Came out in the late 90s, and uh, Purdue Pharma has pleaded guilty this week to federal criminal charges related to the opioid crisis. They are facing charges of more than $8.3 billion due to uh, their efforts in essentially manufacturing the opioid crisis. So again, Purdue Pharma invented Oxycontin in the late 90s. They tried to heavily market that opioid to doctors they tried heavily to encourage doctors and other health companies to over-prescribe the opioid to people who might not need it. They tried heavily to convince people that the opioid wasn't as addictive as it potentially is and was. They tried, well, they did. They set up kickback schemes with doctors and other healthcare companies such that Doctors and healthcare companies were incentivized to prescribe opioids to people, and they would then get some money from Purdue Pharma for prescribing the opioid. So uh, what this means is that this company was artificially creating the means by which they could give their product to human beings, a product that caused harm to their mental and physical health. Problems such that more than 450,000 Americans have died from opioid overdoses since over the past 20 years. In 2018 alone, around 130 people died every day from opioid-related overdoses. I think everyone knows someone who struggles with uh, drug addictions or opioid-related addictions, you know, um, we're specifically talking about opioids here, 
but uh, this is this is a problem, <laughs> and uh, this problem, according to these lawsuits and investigations, could have largely been avoided were companies like Purdue Pharma not artificially trying to peddle their drugs onto the American people, just so they could sell their product, and thereby compromise people's uh, abilities to you know take care of themselves and and thereby um, overcome our ability to <laughs> um, avoid addiction to such drugs as opioids. Yeah, just, to, just to point out, things like this are also a huge reason that a lot of Americans are very mistrustful of the healthcare system, which is, it's a, it's a problem that's related and, and tied into that. Right, absolutely. Yep, the, this is sort of, you know, an, a great way to make, to break trust. It's a great way to break trust between doctors Mm-hmm. between law enforcement, because law enforcement is someone who has to go and force these things and people go, uh, you know, have overdoses. It makes people distrustful of getting help for addiction. It makes people distrustful of government for failing to protect us. You know, it just, it's just a breaking of trust for the sake of profit. And the whole point of our show, Evidence of Design, is to say people it should be valued more than profit. And this is a good example where a company valued profit more than people. And so this company, Purdue Pharma, is, is led by the Sackler family. It's a private company. The Sackler family collectively is worth some $13 billion. But Matt, that's only one year's worth of the contract Google pays to Apple to have Google be the default search engine. Just a drop so, in the pond. Just a drop of the pond, folks. Depends on how far you want to zoom in or zoom out. $13 billion sounds a lot to me, but I guess it's not to Google when the tech companies are worth $5 trillion. But um, that's a lot of money, by the way. So is $5 billion. <laughs> so, or so is $13 billion. Um, so the Sackler family is private private family that owns this private company, Purdue Pharma. They've directly profited. Indeed, uh, most of their $13 billion in profits came from this opioid addiction and crisis. They were only fined $225 million in civil penalties from this so far. That really is a drop in the bucket. A lot of folks are uh, angry that the Sackler family isn't facing criminal charges or being held to pay, uh, well, the money that they profited off of people dying. Yeah, I've heard people calling this a, this isn't a punishment, this is retirement for the Sackler family. Yes, <laughs> an early early retirement. Uh, so I, I don't know, there's so much to get in here, though. I, I only kind of want to spend two more minutes on this just, just for the sake of talking about some other stuff. But, um, you know, there's so much here in that um, it's just sad. It's just sad that, again, human lives were sold out for the sake of profit. Uh, there are more charges still in the works against Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. It's interesting to note that uh, this is where I was going at the end of your Google segment, Matt, that the Sackler family has been reported to wanting to settle this case as soon as possible before the end of Trump's term in office in case he doesn't win, because they think they'll get a more favorable deal under President Trump than they would against a President Biden. And so it's the politics behind this all is interesting, because wait, we have a Republican president, Republican administration going against big companies. Well, there's a lot more to talk about, but we won't get into it. But it seems like, you know, um, it seems like the Sackler family is sure as heck a lot more favorable to get a settlement under Trump than Biden. The last point I want to bring up is that the Sackler family has been shown to move $10 billion in profits out of Purdue Pharma and into a global network of trusts, offshore accounts, and holding companies. I think that's so freaking interesting. (laughs) 
it's one more example of companies avoiding domestic taxation, hiding their profits, and putting it into offshore accounts. Not great. Not great. Was it a Chinese bank account? <laughs> no, that's just Donald Trump's. No. <laughs> Pretty close to that. I like how the presidential debate was just um, Joe Biden and Donald Trump each calling each other out for foreign entanglements. But one of them was talking about things that are reportedly true, and the other was just making things up. <laughs> it was just, it was like, I didn't do that. You did that. And it's like, no, but here's the article where you did that. And the other one's like, I, I think you did that. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you want um yeah donald trump's <laughs> hidden chinese bank account that he's had since he's been president good times um so we're gonna end that segment there <laughs> really wobbly on purdue pharma this week pleading guilty to criminal charges related to the opioid crisis more to come in that regard Thanks for tuning in to Evidence of Design and 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We are less than two weeks out from the most important election in our lifetime. Drum roll, please. That means we might want to think about voting. We already plugged earlier in the hour where folks can vote because early voting in the United or in New York <laughs> starts today, Saturday, October 24th. Mary. Yes. If I want to go vote today... Where can I do that? Um, so, Jason. <laughs> uh, so, polls opened this morning at 9 o'clock a.m. and will be open until 3 p.m. So, you have a few more hours today and then lots of hours over the next eight days. And then, of course, the third to vote. So, I'm going to read all of the locations in Monroe County where you can go vote if you are registered in Monroe County. Just as a note, all of these locations are open to any Monroe County voter. You don't have to go to the one that's closest to your house. You can go to the one that's closer to work or just on your drive. Or if you just want to drive across the county to vote, you can do that. So any one of these locations is available for voting through November 1st. Mary, freedom and choice is as American as you can get. I have freedom and choice when it comes to voting. That's right. I'm so excited. I know. I'm going to use Bing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. To find out my polling place. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly can. But, Matt, you don't need to find out uh, over these next ones because you can go to any of them. Oh All right. So. Um, there is the David F. Gant Community Center on North Street in Rochester, the City of Recreation, uh, City of Rochester Recreation Bureau on St. Paul Street, the Genesee Valley Fieldhouse on Genesee Street. Hey, we're on St. Paul Street right now. That we are. We actually passed that voting poll, uh, the polling place on the way to the radio station. There's oh, yeah. a big sign outside. It's right across from the transit center. It Help is. Tell people where we are. <laughs> WXAR Studios. <that's> okay. <laughs> they can, I'm sure they can use Yahoo search engine to find it out. Oh God! Anyway, so <laughs> back to the list. All right, so we've got uh, the Edgerton Recreation Center on Bacchus Street, SUNY Empire State College on Westfall Road, Town of Chilai Senior Center on Chilai Avenue, the North Greece Road Church of Christ on Greece Road, Marketplace Mall. North Entrance on Miracle Mile Drive, the Irondequoit Public Library at on Titus Avenue, the Harris Whalen Park Lodge on Penfield Road, the Parenton Square Mall on Pittsburgh Palmyra Road, 
and the Webster Recreation Center on Chiyoda Drive. So again, any one of those locations is open every day from today. Today will be 9 to 3, tomorrow 9 to 3, and then during the week the hours will be a little bit longer. Um, those are open every single day from today through Sunday, November 1st, and after November 1st if you haven't voted early, which would be great, and I think all of us will be trying to do that. Uh, then you can vote at your polling place on November 3rd. Mary, Matt already voted. Some people uh, chose to vote by mail this year, which, uh, as a note, if you haven't voted by mail yet and you do have an absentee ballot at this point, it is a better idea to turn in your ballot in person. You can actually turn it in at one of these voting locations. That's so exciting. There's so many, there's more options to vote right now than ever. There are so many options. There's so many options. What a blessing. Let's not let the amount of options available to vote prevent us from voting out of the paralyzation of struggle to figure out, wait, how can I vote? Where can I vote? Let's not let the amount of freedom and choice, dear fellow American, prevent us from exercising our right to vote. And you know how we can find out all those options? Not only by listening to Mary and Evidence of Design, but... New York State Board of Elections. New York State Board of Elections or MonroeCounty.gov forward slash elections. I'll say it one more dang time, MonroeCounty.gov forward slash elections. I'm sure that will come up whether or not you Google it, you Bing it, you Yahoo it, your Netscape. Well, I don't know if it'll Netscape. I don't know if that's I don't know if it exists anymore. You could even type it directly into the search bar. Right. Whatever browser you want to use. It could be Firefox. It could be Safari. It could be Google Chrome. It could be Microsoft Edge. We have so many choices and freedom as an American. That'd probably be Google. Uh, It is probably Google. (laughs) But in any case, please uh, find one of these locations. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a great way to exercise your rights as an American citizen to vote sometime over the next... Nine days. I can't wait to vote. I always, I remember almost all the times that I voted. No well, joke. Jason, we there, could go vote today. We could. We might do it right after this show. I have to go pick up my absentee ballot. And go play with a cat. And go play with a cat. But that won't stop us from voting. No, I could vote tomorrow, too. Day. Right. <laughs> there's so many options to vote. MonroeCounty.gov forward slash elections. I collect the I voted today stickers. Those are really important to me. I, I have many of them such that they're all worn off at different levels. So I can tell how many time you know, how many times I voted because I just look at the thing that I put my I voted stickers on and I and I can count them and collect them and I feel proud to exercise my right to vote. It's a great thing to do. Indeed. Anyways, we're going to end today's show, Evidence of Design and 100.9 FM WXIR. Up next is the Esquire Hour. Stay tuned. John and Craig put on a killer show. Thanks for tuning in to us. You can find our episodes posted as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Stitcher, uh, name off any big tech company. (laughs) Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, the whole shebang. You can find evidence of design there. Until next time, I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Currently the third result in the Google search of my name. And Mary Lawrence. I'll see you at the polls. Be well, be safe, take care, let's get out there, and bye-bye.